We're in the section uh, speaking about impermanence, talking about the uh, Satipatthana refrain. That's the passage that is repeated over and over again with respect to each of the um, the different um, uh, areas of Satipatthana contemplation. And so this is the uh, uh, the re- the refrain about impermanence. So to know things in their arising and their their passing their um, and their uh, both in their arising and, and passing their arising and banishing aspects continuity in developing awareness of impermanence is essential if it's really to affect one's mental condition sustained contemplation of impermanence leads to a shift in one's normal way of experiencing reality, which hitherto tacitly assumed the temporal stability of the perceiver and the perceived objects. Once both are experienced as changing processes, all notions of stable existence and substantiality vanish, thereby radically reshaping one's paradigm of experience. Uh, again, that's a, 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 a succinct and direct way of speaking about uh, insight meditation and uh, the purposes of vipassana. Um, at, uh, he speaks about it in a very uh, sort of straightforward and direct way. There, um, yeah. Once both are experienced as changing processes, all notions of stable existence and substantiality vanish. Um, seeing the uh, the the depth of our attachment to how things are permanent and that we are a separate uh, self-existent individual Um, it's a uh, 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 in a way it's it's stating very briefly something that's a very substantial and in most most cases a a long-lasting and um, a a deeply um, uh, engaging task to understand that quality of uh, attachment identification to the perceiver that I feel like I'm a person who is experiencing doing I'm making choices I am this uh, this individual this person and the substantiality of perceived objects like this chair this monastery um, this planet etc um, etc et all seem like your solid permanent independent um, self-existent things so uh, that uh, <clears throat> what he's outlining here is uh, the uh, essential and potent quality of of their reflection or the investigation of of impermanence in that uh, seeing that um, the uh, uh, e- the nature of every single thing, whether it's mental or physical, is uh, in a state of change. That its nature is uh, transient. Is uh, it, um, is uh, say subject to the laws of change and inexorably uh, changes never stops changing that uh, that leads to the as he says a shift in one's normal way of experiencing reality so our conditioning as living beings and as the um, uh, as this particular species um, means that our, our, our mind creates these uh, these impressions of permanence of substantiality so much of our conditioning is of the the animal realm 
breathing, eating, protecting our territory, um, keeping off uh, aggressors, looking for mates, um, yeah, say the, the all of the instincts of, of survival that are very prominent, they're all based around me as a separate individual and that which either I can eat or it'll eat me or I can mate with it or it might mate, want to mate with me or it wants to invade my territory or I want its territory. That's uh, the kind of conditioning that is so um, strongly embedded in our perceptions. And if, uh, if when I say those kind of things, your mind goes, what? Me? No, 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 no. <laughs> then um, just try holding your breath for 10 minutes. <laughs> or uh, don't eat for three or four days and see what the smell of food does to the, to the mind. So that uh, we are um, heavily conditioned by the uh, impact of birth, the the vipaka, the, the karmic result of having been born uh, and uh, the mind identified with this, this human condition. And so then what we're doing with, with the development of, of insight, the development of mindfulness and this contemplation of uh, impermanence, uncertainty, is a, a direct um, the investigation of that conditioning, a direct challenging of that uh, substantiality. And as uh, as he puts it here very very neatly, um, sustained contemplation of impermanence leads to a shift in one's normal way of experiencing reality, which hitherto tacitly assumed the temporal stability of the observer. Like I exist, I am here, I, I am, um, I will uh, always be here. The temporal stability of the perceiver. And the perceived objects. This this is a chair, and it's it's supposed to be a chair. It's always been a chair, and it will continue to be a chair. Which, uh, uh, on one level, we can uh, we can say, well, well, of course, it's not totally true. This was put together from pieces of wood, but still, we uh, we do tend to uh, create that kind of certainty and solidity in our perceptions, and this. Uh, reflection on impermanence, uh, anicca, anicca-ta, uh, is a, a direct, uh, say, exploration, a challenge to that false um, stability. Contemplation of impermanence has to be comprehensive, for if any aspect of experience is still taken to be permanent, awakening will be impossible. A comprehensive realization of impermanence is a distinctive feature of stream entry. This is the case uh, to such an extent that a stream enterer is incapable of believing any phenomenon to be permanent. And as I was uh, saying, I think yesterday, that uh, statement that you find in many, many of the suttas, Yankinchi Samudaya Damang Sabantang Niroda Damanti, that uh, uh, whatever is a subject to arising is subject to cessation, that's a uh, a standard way that the insight of the stream enter is is characterized or is described is like yankinchi samudaya dhamma whatever is of the nature to arise uh, is of the nature to cease and that that um, that vision that way of seeing is then applied to uh, to every experience so that illusion of of permanence uh, is is broken uh, is cut off at the root Understanding of impermanence reaches perfection with the realizing with with the realization of full awakening. For arahants, awareness of the impermanent nature of all sensory input 
is a natural feature of their experience. And a, a, a little um, connection that Lumpur Cha made in one of his Dhamma talks, um, speaking about a, a meditation experience of his when he was a young monk uh, traveling on Tudong. Uh, he he realized uh, the word for uh, for continuity in Pali is santati, and uh, he uh, had this insight that when the uh, illusion of continuity was uh, was broken, the continuity of uh, I am a person. This is a kuti. That this is the forest. Um, today is Tuesday, etc. When the illusion of continuity is broken, when santati is broken, then you get santi, which means peace. So that when uh, when santati is uh, when the illusion of santati is broken, the result is santi or peace, and so that was a little santati. Santati is continuity, and santi uh, is is peace. So that when the illusion of continuity of a thing, a real separate individual thing that continues through time, when that illusion is broken, then the uh, the result of that breaking is santi is peace. Apart from encouraging awareness of impermanence, this part of the refrain can also, according to the commentarial view, be taken to refer to the factors that condition the arising and the disappearance of the observed phenomena. These factors are treated in the Samudaya Sutta, which relates the arising and the disappearing of each Satipatthana to its respective condition, these being nutriment in the case of body, contact for feelings, name and form for mind, and attention for dhammas. Oh, so this is referring to a particular uh, sutta, the Samudaya Sutta. Um, which is in the Sangita Nikaya, Connected Discourses. And uh, so each of the Satipatthanas is talking about a, a quality that, that feeds them or, or supports them. And, um, and so uh, each one has a particular nutriment, uh, ahara. So the, the, the word for food, material food, is ahara uh, or nutriment. Um, but that doesn't just mean um, uh, it's the only kind of nutriment. So that the nutriment... Um, uh, so the, that which feeds uh, kayanupasana uh, is physical food, nutriment. Um, the uh, for feelings, what supports it or, or nourishes it is sense contact. Uh, that's what supports vedana. Nama rupa, uh, name and form, or mind and body, uh, are what support or inform. Uh, mind and attention, manasikara, for, for dhammas, for the fourth satipatthana. Within the framework of early Buddhist philosophy, both impermanence and conditionality are of outstanding importance. In the course of the Buddha's own approach to awakening, recollection of his past lives and the sight of other beings passing away and being reborn vividly brought home to him the truths of impermanence and conditionality on a personal and universal scale. So the word conditionality um, uh, in Pali is idapachayata, and it, what it means is the way that one thing affects another. So uh, 
uh, Ajahn Tanisaro translates that as uh, this, that, this slash that conditionality. Uh, one one thing um, conditions or affects, you know, causes or is related to another. Ida um, um, meaning this, uh, or, uh, and then Pachaya um, meaning uh, conditionality or the way that things are affecting each other or related to each other. So uh, impermanence and conditionality are of outstanding importance. And then it relates that to the Buddha's experience of um, his awakening and seeing how one life, uh, one pattern of, of activity and experience and conditioning another, both within his own uh, ancient past experience from life to life, and then through the, the arising and passing away of other beings, the, the, the choices and actions and experiences of, of other beings. So um, it's talking about that sort of visionary uh, experiences that the Buddha had during the course of his uh, in enlightenment. Uh, but of course, um, impermanence and conditionality are, are not just um, visible through the say the experience of a Buddha on the night of enlightenment, but it's also um, a, a, a field of contemplation uh, for ourselves. You know, moment by moment, we can notice how um, the uh, uh, everything is changing. Things are impermanent, unstable, transient, and uh, um, uh, say devoid of of a substantiality. But also how one thing affects another. So. Um, Conditionality, having made the choice to come along to the Dhamma reading, you know, sitting here in the sala, listening to it. Um, me uh, having got this far in the book, you know, the, the, uh, the particular words I'm reading and the particular uh, say, uh, commentary I'm giving is based on the fact that I speak English, is my first language, and the uh, 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 endeavor to communicate or illuminate some of these teachings to be of benefit to, to people and to explore them, to reflect, and to contemplate. And the, the words that come to my mind are based on the conditionality of uh, memory, uh, language, um, and the sense of uh, what will be uh, useful, comprehensible, and, and so forth. So we can reflect and explore conditionality, how one thing affects another, and impermanence uh, in uh, the most ordinary, everyday, tangible situations. It doesn't, even though he uses this example, I'm not quite sure why he uses such a sort of grand or distant example, um, because it's a, it's also a, a process of exploration and, and it is valuable when it's carried out much closer to home. The same two aspects, that is uh, <coughs> impermanence and conditionality, contributed to the realization of the previous Buddha, Vipassi, when after a detailed examination of dependent co-arising, Paticca Sambhupada, Satipatthana contemplation of the impermanent nature of the five aggregates led to his awakening. I will therefore consider this additional perspective on this part of the Satipatthana refrain by, refer by surveying the Buddha's teaching on conditionality within its philosophical and historical context. So this is leading into Paticca Sambhupada, uh, uh, dependent co-arising, as he translates that, as a, a, an aspect of this uh, area of conditionality and um, and also and how that relates to 
um, arising, passing away, and this, the reflection and the investigation of uh, impermanence. So that, of course, would be a, and has been a subject of many other PhDs, <laughs> but he does deal with it quite uh, succinctly and uh, and quite directly. So that's uh, the next uh, part is um, he as he uh, explores dependent co-arising Paticca Samuppada, and in, in many ways Paticca Samuppada is sort of the, the the detailed working of conditionality. So idapachayata is the the way that one thing affects another uh, as a sort of broad principle, and then uh, Paticca Samuppada is that the fine the fine anatomy of that. So you can say. Uh, Idapachayata would be to say, like, this is the body, and then Paticca Samapada is saying, well, the body is made up of bones and muscles and organs and the blood system and the lymph system and nerves, and, and so it's going into the, the fine detail and the mechanics of, of how that uh, conditionality works. <coughs> Any questions, reflections, clarifications before I carry on? Yes, Nevin. I mean, the text you're getting to now is probably the most difficult and probably the most diverse amongst the schools, you know, the self and not self, because so many schools seem to have different opinions. But um, we think, and you said earlier in the book when you were talking that a lot of people get. Um, very depressed about this not self, it's in a very nihilistic approach. So people think, well, what's the point? There's no self. But I don't know that terrible. I know in Nagarjuna, he would say that self, one opposite, not self, are two extremes. So he tried to find the middle way of self and not self. So he said that there was a dependent origination, there was a flow. And that, because of dependent origination, there was that continual experience because of dependent origination. But you wouldn't find an unchanging permanent self, but that there was a kind of existence. It was not non-existence, because non-existence, if we had non-existence, there could be no good and bad, so there could be no karma. There would have to be, the karma is a reaction to an action, isn't it? So something must have caused that reaction. So it's a very, very difficult subject, isn't it? Very difficult. Whenever I read it, I know that it baffles me. It's very, very hard. Well, the, the one of the main teachings, I'll read it. Uh, <coughs> the, um, the, the, the longest teaching on dependent origination is the Mahanidana Sutta in the Diganikaya, the great discourse on origination. And it starts off... Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus, there is a market town there called Kamasa Dhamma, and the Venerable Ananda came to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side and said, It is wonderful, Lord, it is marvellous, how profound this dependent origination is, and how profound it appears, and yet it appears to me as clear as clear. Do not say that, Ananda, do not say that. This dependent origination is profound and appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine, that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string, covered as if, as if with a blight, tangled like coarse grass 
unable to pass beyond the states of woe, the ill destiny, ruin, and the round of birth and death. So in, in classic mode, Ananda <laughs> says, oh, this is, this is really important, this is significant, um, it's profound, and, and I understand it as, uh, as clear as can be. And the Buddha said, no, you don't. <laughs> Not so, Ananda, don't say that. Um, yeah, it is subtle and profound, um, but we'll, he gives a good explanation, and also it's a field of views and opinions, and as I was saying um, about uh, <coughs> the... Uh, say the different opinions about what internal and external mean, then the different opinions about dependent origination are also very thorough and rife, uh, and people have very strong um, uh, ideas, uh, fixed views about what uh, what it what it really means and what the teaching uh, is and, and isn't. But I feel uh, that Venerable Anayu does a very good job of uh, explaining Paticca Samuppada and also representing. Uh, the the views, the different perspectives, and gives backup for for various um, different uh, ideas uh, of what it might mean and, and how to use it. And and similarly, the um, what I uh, usually recommend as the very best book uh, in English on dependent origination is by uh, Venerable Payuto, uh, P. A. Payuto. It's just called Dependent Origination, and it's a, a, uh, it's part of his greater um, uh, tome, a big fat book called Buddha Dhamma. So the book Dependent Origination is an off-print from that that was done many years ago. And we have quite a number of copies in, in the library and it's really uh, uh, excellently done, I feel. Similarly, he he goes through the different expressions, goes through the different terms, talks about um, different interpretations, how to apply the, the teaching and how uh, uh, it can be used on a um, macrocosmic scale, like uh, over three lifetimes, or it can be used on a microcosmic scale, just on the moment-by-moment -moment experience, and how the scriptures back up those different perspectives, just as Venerable Analio does. So both of them, uh, I think, are very adept at not just um, taking one point of view and saying, this is true and all the others uh, are wrong, but rather representing in a fair and unbiased, open way the different uh, outlooks. Uh, I think that Nevin, the the uh, um, passage you are referring to, it's um, in Nag Nagarjuna's uh, Majjhimaka uh, Majjhimaka uh, Karika, the the commentary on the Middle Way. Um, it's the one suit one uh, discourse he refers to is a passage uh, is a sutta from the um, Pali Canon, and it's um, the Buddha speaking to uh, Mahakachana. And uh, and he says, all exists is one extreme, nothing exists is the other extreme. The Tathagata expounds the Dhamma by the middle way. And it is with uh, ignorance is condition that formations come to be, and so on. So that's, it's uh, in the, um, like many of the teachings that are going to be quoted here, they're in the, it's in the Nidana Sangyuta, the connected discourses about causation, which is a, a great sort of a treasure chest of different teachings about um uh, causality and uh, dependent origination, and it's Sutta number fifteen. In that, it's just called Kachana Gota, after the, the discourse to Kachana, and so that's a, a very uh, significant and helpful teaching. But to go on to this section now, <coughs> dependent co-arising, Paticca Samuppada. 
At the time of the Buddha, a variety of philosophical positions on causality were current in India. Some teachings claimed that the universe was controlled by an external power, either an omnipotent god or a principle inherent in nature. Some took man to be the independent doer and enjoyer of action. Some favoured determinism, while others completely rejected any kind of causality. Despite their differences, all these positions concurred in recognising an absolute principle formulated in terms of the existence or absence of a single or first cause. And uh, of those, it was uh, Purana Kasapa and Makali Gosala were the ones who most uh, um, uh, say pointedly rejected any kind of causality. The Buddha, on the other hand, proposed dependent co-arising, Paticca Samuppada, as his middle way, quote-unquote, explanation of causality. His conception of dependent co-arising was so decisive a departure from existing conceptions of causality that he came to reject all of the four prevalent ways of formulating causality. And a typical example can be found in the Sangyutta, where the Buddha was asked whether dukkha, suffering, was caused by oneself, by others, by both, or by neither, i.e. Uh, that it had arisen by chance. After the Buddha had denied all four alternatives to his interlocutor, surprised that all four ways of stating the causality of dukkha had been rejected, uh, his, uh, his inquirer wondered whether the Buddha was simply unable to see or admit the existence of dukkha. And a similar dialogue uh, occurs also in another later sutta in the Sangyutta about, uh, about happiness. The novelty of the Buddha's position can also be seen in the fact that the term Paticca Samuppada was apparently invented by him in order to express his understanding of causality. And there's an interesting paper by Sister Tisara, what's that scholar's name? There was a woman who did a lot of research into the... Uh, oh, Sue Hamilton. Sue Hamilton, thank you. As <laughs> uh, a, a, a scholar uh, a, of um, uh, Buddhist scriptures, Sue Hamilton, who's done interesting research into the uh, uh, other scriptural origins of different elements of the Paticca Samuppada and sort of explores the uh, sort of philosophical roots. But it seems as though the Buddha coined the, the term Paticca Samuppada and also put them put the terms together in the the form that he he does. Um, that was his uh, unique formulation, even though you get various parts of it represented in different places, if I remember what I read correctly. That the, the way that the Buddha put together what's usually described as the twelve links, that putting the that process of causation in that uh, in that particular sequence, uh, and then with those particular relations between them, that's unique to the Buddha's teaching. You get other parts of what we think of as dependent origination represented um, from the Vedic tradition and um, different places, but the, the the whole pattern of it is unique to the to the Buddha. The discourses often describe dependent co-arising with a model of twelve sequential links, 
This sequence traces the conditioned arising of dukkha back to ignorance, avicca. According to the Patisambhida Magga, these twelve links extend over three consecutive individual lifetimes. The twelve links applied to three lifetimes probably sorry, the twelve links applied to three lifetimes probably assumed increasing importance in the historical development of Buddhist thought, as a way of explaining rebirth without an eternally surviving agent. Somebody is being born. <laughs> Although the sequence of twelve links occurs frequently in the discourses, substantial variants can also be found. Some of these start with the third link, consciousness, which moreover stands in a reciprocal relationship with the next link, name and form, Namarupa. Uh, these and other vari variations suggest that the mode of explanation based on three lifetimes is not the only possible way of approaching an understanding of dependent co-arising. And incidentally, that, um, that that's very true. I think uh, there's about, uh, if I remember, uh, something like nine different uh, specific ways that you get those um, elements of dependent origination put together. Um, and as he he says, some with uh, in a different or in a different order, with parts missing or starting in different places. And significantly, in that the the, the biggest uh, the longest discourse on dependent origination, the Mahanidana Sutta, which is number fifteen in the Diginikaya, um, it it follows the the process back to um, uh, to Nama Rupa and consciousness. It says. Um, so it uh, starts off with uh, with with dukkha and goes back through the the normal um, well, sequence um, to a certain degree until it gets to to feeling. Then it has a long digression into the different things that uh, feelings condition, which I won't go into right here. But then, uh, as it goes sort of uh, um, past uh, the realm of uh, of feeling to um, uh, to uh, the sen uh, to sense contact, then he says, um, "I have said mind and uh, uh, let's see, um, so uh, mind, uh, uh, see mind and body is the root, the cause, the condition for all contact." And then he also then says, "Consciousness conditions mind and body," and. <clears throat> then after having said consciousness conditions mind and body, then he says, I have said mind and body condition consciousness. If consciousness did not find a resting place in mind and body, would there be subsequently an arising, a coming to be of birth, aging, death and suffering? No, Lord. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely mind and body is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far, then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay, death and falling into other states and being reborn. Thus far extends the way of designation of concepts. Thus far is the sphere of understanding. Thus far the round goes, as far as can be discerned in this life, namely to mind and body, together with consciousness. And then, um, then <coughs> it's um, so that it's uh, in that description you have mind and body conditioning consciousness, 
and consciousness conditioning mind and body, which your mind might go, huh? But um, and he goes into to the, the different ways that things condition each other and affect each other. But there's also another very useful sutta in the Sangyutta. It's uh, sutta number 67 in that same uh, connected discourses about causation. And it's called The Bundles of Reeds. And uh, it's a, a dialogue between, I think, uh, Venerable Sariputta and Mahakotita. And um, they have the, the, the same thing. And Mahakotita says, uh, as Sariputta is explaining, that uh, mind and body, Nama Rupa conditions consciousness, consciousness conditions mind and body. Then he says, well, how can this be? Because that, uh, that they can't condition each other. And then the Venerable Sariputta says, well, it's, uh, if you imagine two two bundles of reeds that lean upon each other, they both, uh, these two bundles, they, if they lean on each other, then they hold each other up. And so that uh, mind and body leans on consciousness, consciousness leans on mind and body. They, they, this is how they mutually condition and support each other. So if you want to read the original sutta of that, then that's number 67 in the Sangyutta. Although the sequence of 12 links occurs frequently in the discourses, substantial variance can be found. So I'll just read that again so we'll keep the thread going. Some of these start with the third link, consciousness, which moreover stands in a reciprocal relationship with the next link, name and form. So that's like the bundle of reeds. When he says reciprocal relationship, that they affect each other, support each other. These and other variations suggest that the mode of explanation based on three lifetimes, is not the only possible way of approaching an understanding of dependent co-arising. And also, as I'm saying that, there's also an interesting sutta where it goes back even further than avijja. So, and what is the, what's the condition, what's the cause for avijja? And then he names uh, the outflows, the asava, the, as the cause of, uh, of avijja, the cause of, of ignorance. In fact, the twelve links are but a particularly frequent application of the general structural principle of dependent co-arising. In the Pachaya Sutta of the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Buddha introduced this important distinction between the general principle, on the one hand, and its application, on the other. This discourse speaks of the twelve links as dependently originated phenomena, while Paticca Samuppada refers to the relation between them, that is, to the principle. So that uh, he's using the, the term Paticca Samuppada just to um, specifically talk about the nature of the relationship between one factor and the other, say, between feeling and craving, or between um, sense contact and, and feeling, or between clinging and becoming, and so on. This distinction between the principle and the twelve links as one of its applications is of considerable practical relevance since a full understanding of causality is to be gained with stream entry. So that's one of the conditions of stream entry is understanding uh, causality. The distinction between principle and application 
suggests that such an understanding of causality need not necessarily require a personal experience of the twelve links. So it means to, if you if it uh, to interpret that, okay, it's clear that there has to be an understanding, a direct understanding of causality in order to quote unquote qualify for stream entry or to accomplish stream entry. But he's saying, well, don't worry uh, if you think you've got to understand all 12 links or see them all in order to be a stream enterer. Uh, it, uh, as I'm reading this, he's saying, don't worry, it's not that challenging. It's a, the, what has to be understood is the principle of how it works. Um, and to, to know that and to get a feeling for that in a direct and insightful way. That is, even without developing the ability to recollect past lives, and thereby directly experiencing those factors of the twelve links that supposedly pertain to a past life, one can still personally realize the principle of dependent co-arising. Also, that comment is depending on it. It, it, uh, it relies on the idea of interpreting dependent origination just as a three-life, um, say, description. But if you uh, look at it as a moment-by-moment. Um, experience, which he, he goes into shortly, then uh, it, it's much more, uh, uh, say, impossible, uh, doable to be able to see the whole cycle of dependent origination as it uh, occurs w within this lifetime and within present experience. Compared to the entire set of 12 links, the basic principle of dependent co-arising is more easily amenable to direct contemplation. A discourse in the Nidana Sangita, for example, applies dependent co-arising, quote-unquote, to the conditioned relation between contact and feeling, pasa and vedana. Such direct application of the principle to subjective experience occurs also in the Vibhanga, which relates dependent co-arising to single mind moments. Another example of a direct application of the principle of conditionality can be found in the Indriya Bhavana Sutta, which qualifies pleasure and displeasure arising at any of the six sense doors as dependently arisen, paticca samuppana, a usage that is not related to past or future lives. So these are various teachings that are pointing to or referring to paticca samuppada as a moment by moment experience. The same holds true for the Madhupindika Sutta, that's number 18 in the Majjhima uh, Nikaya, the, the Sweet Morsel Sutta, its detailed analysis of the perceptual process. This discourse depicts the arising, upada, of consciousness, independence, quote-unquote, uh, paticca, on the sense organ. That's in-gap dependence uh, on the sense organ and the sense object with sense contact being the coming together of the three, this, uh, and together is sung, so the, the coming together of uh, those arising, the, the, uh, the, say the organ of the eye, um, the, the uh, impact of light and the arising of consciousness, that sense contact is uh, pasa, and then that gives rise to a feeling, Vedana, and then feeling gives rise to a, a perception, sanya. This passage reveals a deeper significance of each part of the term paticca sam upada, dependent, co-arising, without any need for different lifetimes or for the whole set of twelve links. Thus realization of dependent co-arising 
can take place simply by witnessing the operation of conditionality in the present moment within one's own subjective experience. Oh, this is um, uh, one of those um, areas of um, uh, grasping opinions. So you get those uh, various admirable and noble Buddhist scholars uh, who say, it's three lifetimes, it's really clear, it's completely obvious, you know, you've got talk of, uh, in the way the Buddha talks about it, it's uh, as clear as clear can be, it's definitely three lifetimes. And others who say, no, 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 that's just um, incidental, uh, and the, the real important, uh, and the, the actual teaching of dependent origination is about moment-by-moment -moment experience. And so then, as I was saying before, and as uh, is a regular theme, that by grasping a particular opinion, a ditty, then you end up taking some refined principle of, uh, of, um, of spiritual training, and, and you end up having a, a sort of playground fight uh, over it. I'm right. Uh, no, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. <laughs> you're wrong. You're a fool. No, no. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not the fool. You are. And that there's a, a whole lot of uh, arising of dukkha caused by that kind of grasping of, of opinions. Um, there's a, 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 a helpful little note here. Uh, it says um, from uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa on his from his book um, on dependent origination. He, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa says the entire series of dependent origination operates in a flash. The twelve conditions may all arise, exercise their function, and pass away so fast that, that we are completely unaware of it. And uh, Ajahn Chah liked that um, uh, approach to Paticca Samuppada, and he said it's, it's like falling out of a tree and trying to count the branches on the way down. Because all you know is, FUD! OW! That hurt! <laughs> so it's a very practical approach to dependent origination. But uh, um, in this... Uh, even though um, Ajahn Buddhadasa and Ajahn Chah would, would stress the, the sort of moment-by-moment -moment, uh, interpretation or say that's the most practical use, uh, I would say it's a mistake to, um, to try and reinterpret the suttas to say that's, that's only what they say. And Venerable Paiuto, in his book, uh, Dependent Origination, very usefully did an, an analysis of all the references to dependent origination both in the canon and in the commentaries at least you know, the, all that he had access to. And he made a very interesting observation, which was that uh, if you look at the Pali Canon, then about two-thirds of the references to dependent origination relate to moment-by-moment -moment experience, and about one-third relate to past lives and present life and future lives. Uh, and that uh, uh, it's, it's, they're both uh, um, aspects are there, but the majority go to the moment-by-moment -moment experience. And then in the commentaries, it's reversed, so that about one-third of the references in the commentaries refer to moment-by-moment -moment experience, and about two-thirds re uh, refer to past life, present life, future life uh, experiences. And so there's a, there seems to have been a drift over time towards that, um, uh, that interpretation of the, the three-life model. But uh, uh, both Venerable Analio and um, Venerable Paiuto are uh, are very happy, uh, I think, helpfully acknowledge that you get both represented in the in the teachings, and also they're both um, very helpfully unbiased in uh, in how they present it.
Yes. Would it not be true to say that the Buddha, when he was explaining these things, was both um, responding to an existing level of rebirth, mm. and so at that point you have to talk about rebirth because mm. that's how people understand it, and also introducing his own way of thinking about these mm. things using that model. So that again, the language has to be intelligible. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in effect, he might have been talking about two different things using the same language mm-hmm. uh, and actually responding to an idea that rebirth is like this and it's mm-hmm. actually you know, this rebirth was taken as, as granted at the time wasn't it <laughs> well, some. Uh, um, I think that, uh, that's true um, to a certain extent because you get the Buddha very much speaking within a, a cultural context and using the languaging and and the belief systems of uh, people in, in his time. Um, and so you you uh, have that as a, a reference point. But uh, I certainly feel that. The, uh, it's so uh, matter of fact, and it's not just in terms of Paticca Samuppada, but um, the number of references to past lives uh, and future lives, other realms of existence, in various different ways, they're so abundant um, that I don't think that the Buddha was was being just uh, it was just not wasn't just being metaphorical, but. Uh, I think that some people like that idea. No, 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 it was all just metaphor. The Buddha never taught anything about past lives or future lives or other realms. It was all just, um, uh, uh, say, uh, using uh, the mythology of the time. But uh, I, I, I personally, I feel that's going too far. I wasn't really thinking so much about that, but sort of, um, I think it was um, Richard Gombrich had said that one of the things the Buddha did is he ethicized the whole process. So he introduced that element of, of, uh, of ethics and choice, which would be the leap of ink of ignorance. And mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's, that's where the, the, um, the weakness is in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would be part of that's his way of introducing that into an already existing scheme of explaining yeah. how these mm-hmm. things work. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, and when, when he, you go into it in some detail, then you, you find that what he, uh, he, one of the radical things he did say is uh, intention is karma. Uh, that uh, the action, also the significant action, is intention. And that's like a, a very bold statement, and that, and that also we can make choices, and that our choices make a difference. Whereas some of the philosophers would say, no, you, you know, that you can't really make any choices, or that, uh, or that on the other extreme, or whatever choices you make, the um, the results of those choices is totally random. And uh, and so and his teaching on causality is like, no, <laughs> the the choices are real, and they and they have definite effects. Uh, that, that come based on those uh, whether the choice is wholesome or unwholesome, and that, that so the element of of ethics, you know, sila, is is right at the at the center of that, and that um, and to me that that um, saying you know, karma is intention uh, is um, is hugely significant. Our whole vinaya training is based around that, and it was it was in a major contrast to say the uh, the Jains, the, the nigantas of the time, where it's Irrespective of the intention, the action has a, a, a karmic result. And uh, he said, "No, no, no, no. It's, 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 uh, it hinges upon intention. That if you deliberately kill an ant, 
it has a it's a, has a very different effect on you, not on the ant, but on you, <laughs> uh, than if you tread on an ant completely accident, you know, unknowingly. It has a different uh, a different result. There's also a, a very helpful comments by Ajahn Tanisro on this, where he talks about what's called scale uh, invariance. So just as say if you look at the a picture of a nerve ending under a uh, a dendrite, hopefully called a dendrite under a, a microscope, um, it looks like a, a silhouette of a tree, which is in um, a dendron in in Greek is a tree or dendros, uh, and that's why they got called dendrites. <laughs> they look like a tree, and then if you ramp up the uh, magnification and you look at a, 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 a say the estuary of a river. Um, then you can see that that also looks like uh, like a, a tree. So you have the same pattern, whether it's a nerve ending or a tree or a, a river delta, um, that they they can all have exactly the same kind of pattern. So that that uh, similarity of pattern on different scales is called scale invariance, and uh, I feel that's a helpful way of, of talking about the um, the patterns that are described in dependent origination on a sm uh, the, it's the same pattern. But it's happening at different scales, so that on the the moment by moment, it's not as though it's either one or the other. But the the on a sort of moment by moment level or a lifetime to lifetime level, that the same kind of patterns are happening. But one is at a microscopic level, one's at an ordinary vision level, and one's at a macroscopic level, or, and so probably you know, many many different levels in between. So that uh, I feel is a very helpful, uh, very insightful, and very helpful way of understanding how this works and so that it's uh, the same patterns uh, about how um, beings are sort of launched from uh, in one lifetime to another and, and born in different different realms um, and the the value of ending rebirth uh, uh, and the importance of that not being born again across lifetimes it's the same as the in the, the present moment of not being born into a feeling of irritation or feeling of, of hope or fear or uh, excitement and so on that that um, that patterning of being born into something like oh this is uh, my my chair or my book or my feelings um, uh, it's the same kind of birth but it's just happening on a different scale one is a uh, a moment by moment. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and the other is a, a, a whole sort of, uh, sort of deep tissue investment in a particular identity, a name, a, a mode of life, and, and so on. So uh, that uh, <coughs> is a um, say uh, um, uh, a way of of looking at it that I I, I feel is is helpful and also it respects the different uh, expressions of the teachings in a very clear and uh, an accurate way as far as I'm uh, uh, familiar with the teachings. Well, any questions? Yes. I was just wondering, how does uh, free will fit into dependent origination? Does, does it negate free will? Is there any sort of happiness Uh, no, it's, that's that's well. It's, it depends. the The whole issue of, of predetermination and free will depends on the idea of an independent self. 
And so the, uh, the Buddhist approach is, is sort of at a, a pre, it, it comes out the whole thing from a different angle. There's a wonderful um, piece by, written by the philosopher Daniel Dennett uh, called uh, "Is God a Taoist?" and it and it explores this whole um, this whole area. And it starts off with this living being bemoaning the fact that that he's got free will, and then God saying, oh, "But you, this is the most precious thing that you've got. Why why are you complaining?" Uh, and anyway, uh, what it, it explores is that both the idea of predestination and free will uh, are predicated. They depend on the idea of a separate individual I. And if you let go of the I, then it changes the picture quite quite radically. So what you have in, in, the, in the, the Buddha's approach is that you know, choices are, are made, but it's not that choice doesn't belong to a separate individual entity but those choices have uh, repercussions that they have effects and the effect it depends upon the choices made and as I was saying with sister tisara that the wholesome or unwholesome aspects of, of the choice uh, have intrinsic uh, vipaka or, or the, you know, they have intrinsic results so if it's a wholesome intention then it's likely to condition a pleasant result if it's an unwholesome intention it's likely to condition a painful result uh, and the intention is the the key uh, principle in the middle of it and that uh, uh, the the buddha makes that very very clear over and over again and uh, our whole um, vinaya training it goes into extraordinary uh, thorough detail uh, about uh, you know many many different aspects of action speech and conduct uh, and so many times it's, it's almost it's, there are a few uh, rules that you can be that can be broken without intention but there's they are extremely small in number and that uh, and that over and over again i say 99.999 percent of the time literally it says if there's no intention it's not an offense if there is an if there is an intention then there isn't it's an offense I think eating in the afternoon is one of the significant ones that uh, even if there's no intention, it's an it's an offence. It's like saying, be be extra double careful before you put anything in your mouth in the afternoon, <laughs> because you should uh, whether whether or not you intend to eat food, double check. But uh, that pre- the uh, the the say. Um, the importance with that is uh, balancing the understanding of responsibility uh, on a conventional truth level with the insight into not-self on an ultimate truth level. And so that um, <coughs> there, you, you know, to, if, if, I, if I take something that belongs to Ajahn Ahimsako, you know, that I, I steal his sandals, I think I want his sandals. His feet are smaller than mine, but I don't care. I'm going to steal his sandals anyway. If I steal them, uh, and then he says, uh, Ajahn, I believe you took my sandals. And I say, well, they're mine now. They're not yours. And <coughs> and, uh, and he say, well, but um, you know that surely, Ajahn, that's theft. And I say, well, actually, there's no real owner. They're, they're not yours. They're not mine. There's no self. So get over it. 
then I'm, I'm misusing a concept of, of uh, not-self by uh, to, to uh, say, justify an action. So that, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating that I'll probably come up with a better excuse than that. But. <laughs> what I mean is that uh, that intention that arises, is that predetermined? No, no, no. It's not, it's preconditioned. So there's a big difference between predetermined. So the, the, the Buddha's teaching depends on the fact that things are not predetermined. And he very explicitly, over and over again, he went against the philosophers who, who proposed that. He said that karma is fixed, this is like a ball of string that unwinds, and regardless of what we do, then we'll experience pleasant or painful feeling. He said, no, it's not. It's preconditioned. So if I've stolen things, or I've uh, told lies, or I, I've been generous and, and compassionate and thoughtful, that those will have their effects. If I if I've been stealing things and telling lies, I will see uh, the world around me, and and I will relate to others in a very very different way than if I've been generous and compassionate. Uh, so that the uh, the choices that we make have their effects. But that choice was not. So you then wouldn't say that choice was determined by. by no, it's it's preconditioned. No, that's what I'm saying. It's preconditioned. So that if if I have told lies or I've stolen things, that's going to create a certain attitude within me. That's so there is something inside that is not self, but there is something which is, is deliberately going against what has like a set uh, different direction that you could take. Yeah, there's uh, the, the choice is possible. Uh, and so. Um, but as I say, it's preconditioned so that if I. If I have stolen a lot of things, or I have told a lot of lies, I have been particularly cruel, then if I have a, 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 a greedy impulse or an aggressive impulse towards Ajahn Hingsako, then it's like, oh, that's force of habit because I've been a, a, a greedy and a deceitful and an aggressive person. Okay, I've seen the painful results of that, now I want to change that habit. Having seen the painfulness of that, that action, okay, that there's a lot of preconditioning, like, oh, nice sandals, whoa, I'll have those. That'd be, that'd be preconditioning, like, and then to recognize, no, that's, that's got a painful result, and besides I'm a monk, and if I steal them, then that's the end of my monk's life. So don't do it. That, that there's a choice, there's a, there's a, a capacity to reflect, consider, to, to see the, the, uh, the pleasant and painful results that are there in prospect. So, then the choice comes from, okay, I'm going to follow that, I, I don't care, I'm going to follow that impulse anyway, or, I, or that, no, even though that's a strong impulse to get those sandals, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not going to follow it, it's not going to be pursued. So um, according to conventional speech, uh, then you say, I'm not going to follow it, but that's just a way of speaking, you know, that it's important, as, as he, uh, Venerable Analyo Described, I know it was uh, in a different. It was um, in a Nyanati um, Loka book that when we use those those kind of terminology, like I decide, you know, I'm I'm I want or I did that 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 uh, use of the personal pronouns, they are, are understood to be just, uh, conventions of speech. You can't, but when when, you, when I meditate, I see like thoughts pop up my head, and I have no control over the, the, the thought that mm -hmm. arises. Well, they're preconditioned because they arise based on your past experience. 
the fact that you speak English, the, the country that you're living in, what the weather is outside, who your parents are, uh, what, you, uh, what you ate today, you know, it's just uh, things are preconditioned, but they're not fixed. So that uh, what, what, is, uh, uh, what is chosen to do is, uh, say, the meeting point of the present moment awareness and the clarity of that with that flow of preconditioned experiences. So what we've choos- chosen to come to the Dhamma reading. <laughs> so that, that having made that choice, then there's a particular pattern of experience. If you chose to just stay in your room, you'd have a different experience. So this dialogue is preconditioned by the the choice to come here and then the choice to answer the, uh, to ask the question. So, uh, But exactly the words that I choose to, to say are not fixed. It's dependent on the expression on your face, how much you're nodding, uh, <laughs> how, how completely I think I might have explained the point, whether I'll carry on or whether I'll stop. So uh, that, that meeting point of, uh, of attention uh, and the, the preconditioning of the past, that's where the whole of the practice is located, really. So that there's receiving the more that the the effects from the past either of our own actions or the the place where we're living the weather the more that's uh, we are receiving the effects of past action we can't undo what's happened before but we can we can have a the, the attitude with which those are received is is something that we can have an effect on so to be receiving the effects of past action with an open heart and with awareness sort of is part one then part two is and having received the effects uh, of past action and past experience like this then the more mindfulness and wisdom that is brought to that in the present moment then the more that that uh, the choice that is made in the present is that okay that was really painful uh, remembering that ow uh, let's not repeat that. Okay, so therefore I'll choose to not steal those sandals. I'll choose to explain things in this particular way. I'll you know, choose to do such and such. And so then the more that there is greed, hatred and delusion and a lack of clarity, the more the mind will follow uh, the impulses based on fear, on aversion, on desire. The, the more those that preconditioning will just automatically... Uh, trigger uh, the the following of of habits, and so that uh, and then repeat you know, painful uh, and uh, obstructive patterns almost always. So that uh, <clears throat> um, we can't um, say undo what's been caused in the past, but we can you know, have, have an effect on how it is received in the present. And then the more that that informs, the, the greater the quality of mindfulness and wisdom, the more that fully informs the choices that are made and that the seeds that we plant for the future. We can't unplant seeds that have already been planted, but the choices that we make in the present can um, they have a, a, an effect on how they, how they ripen and, and how we, are, say, equip ourselves to handle them in the future. So... So some sort of like person's following around like, and I sorry, I just had an image. I just lost completely. But 
So that there is some sort of agent that has a choice every moment. There is some sort of thing to investigate. Well, we, I, there's, uh, there's satipanya, is mindfulness and wisdom. You know, the mind has the capacity to, uh, to choose. It doesn't always employ that in a skillful way. Um, but the, the Buddha was really clear about the, about the it's, not, it, it's not a person. That the, the, it, it appears to be that personhood is something that is, is created. So I am, the I am is a conceiving. It's, it's something that's put together. <clears throat> and what you can know, and, like, and that's one of the great strengths, the power of insight meditation, is the recognition, oh, that there's, a, there's a, uh, an experience of this moment, and then there's a capacity to choose, and there's a capacity to see what the results of those choices are, moment by moment. But calling it a person, calling it me, calling it my practice, calling it me being awake or me being aware, is, is extra, and is, uh, is, and is generally obstructive. And the more that the vipassana is developed, the more that insight is developed, the more then that uh, there, there's, a, there's not a personalizing of those, of those qualities, but more seeing these as patterns of nature, that anger or fear or desire, jealousy, um, that they are uh, afflictive emotions, or, and, or that you know, kindness, compassion, wisdom, generosity, these are... Uh, say powerfully positive emotions that can be uh, can be followed or not, and that the um, uh, the the addition of I am practicing, I am watching, or uh, I am a person who's making choices, that's recognised more and more as as an accretion that I'm making and mind making is seen as being as added on that that also doesn't have to be believed in, and so when we talk about ending rebirth. You're, you're ending that um, that forming of the mind of uh, those patterns into uh, into a separate entity, into a, a me who's the doer, a me who's the owner, and that ending rebirth is that uh, you know, no longer creating the causes for those those patterns to be attached to, even the positive ones, even the wholesome ones. That there's not a uh, uh, an I or me or a mind that is being added onto that, but they're just they're known as they they fully are, as they as they truly are, and they're known fully and completely, without uh, without delusion. It's not it's not easy to work with, or to, uh, but it's the kind of thing that in the meditation, it's it's almost like you have to catch yourself unawares. It's like looking at a star. If you look directly at a star, it's dimmer than if you look just to one side. If you if you look at a star in the sky, it's the way the eye works. If you look directly at a star, then the light falls onto what's called the, the blind spot or the yellow spot in the eye. With a, the, but if you look just to one side, then the, the star gets brighter. And you go, oh, it is quite bright. Then you look back at the star and it gets dim again. <laughs> so it's in the same way. If you look, if you try and look directly at uh, at the mind in this way, often it, it can be confusing or difficult. So sometimes you have to. Or, like I said, catch yourself unawares. So in the in the practice, when you say in meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation, if you are watching closely, then every so often you'll notice like, oh, there's just hearing. There's 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 this experience sitting in the temple, 
feeling the 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 sound of the and hearing the sound of the wind it's just hearing there isn't a me who's doing the hearing there isn't a me who's practicing with it it's just hearing oh and then <laughs> then the mind said oh that's a useful insight okay I'll, uh, that's great i'm really getting somewhere now i've got that I, there's no me you know I've, I've got that there's no me there's just hearing great you know <laughs> and then the the self has has uh, coagulated around that uh, and has been another being has been born so the ending of rebirth so that it is that the at the end of this when that was those patterns are understood is that the, the life force carries on the body continues as a, uh, the, the the mind continues to interact with the, the sense world but there isn't a, a, an I, me and mine forming um, out of it being formed out of it so to some like um, or this idea of free will and determinism is because I'm, I have an illusion about I would say, if I'm understanding what you're saying, that depend, uh, free will and determinism depend on the idea of, of an I. And so philosophers have been debating it for at least the last 400 years, if not longer. But if you take out the I element, then it changes the, the issue completely. Who is there to have free will, or who is there to be, uh, to be um, independent? Yeah, it's the, it's like the, the the picture changes completely. And speaking of the picture changing, it's ten past seven.